morning, so far as you are able, would you stand for the reading of God's word? We will be reading from Psalms 20, 1 through 9, which you will find on page 504. If you don't have a Bible, please take that as a gift to you. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in the chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. This is the word of Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you. That's perfect. Again, welcome to you. If you are just now joining us in person or online, my name is Evan Skelton. I'm one of the pastors here. And as is normal in our service, we're going to spend a good portion of our service reflecting on God's word. It's what we need most. It's what transforms us, particularly as that good word, as, that, as God's word points straight to Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're ready to do today. And so if you would, again, take, keep your Bible out with you. So here's what um, should be a normal pattern um, for those of you, again, who might be new to this or been doing this for quite some time, is not to read the passage, close the passage, and tuck it under our seat and say, all right, let's see what the pastor's got for you. Well, I'll tell you what the pastor's got for you. This stuff. So please keep the Bible open. We want to be looking at the verses together. In fact, if you ever find that myself or Larry or John or ever uh, preaching God's word, teaching God's word in a way that would contradict or lead away from God's intent, we need to know after all, that's what God has called us to do, is to make much of him and what he has said and not to give you two, our two cents. You don't need that. You need what God says. So again, I hope you will keep your Bibles open and take that Bible as a gift to you um, if you do not have one or you know someone who could use one. Now you heard from the reader, um, and if you've been with us the last few weeks, what you will have noticed is that we are not in Mark's gospel this morning, as we have been for several months. In fact, we've, pa- we've paused our series in Mark to pick up another series that we usually during, do during the summer, kind of a tradition for us here at Bayless, to look at a very different book, but one that is no less about Jesus Christ, the book of Psalms, which I'm convinced is one of the most important books to read and reflect on if you want to know what a relationship with God sounds like, specifically a relationship of dependent trust upon him, even in times of great difficulty and uncertainty, which is what we're finding in Psalm chapter 20. But before we get into it, because this is our first um, time in the book of Psalms since last year, and some of us are new since then, 
And some of us, we may have grown up reading the Psalms or we may have never read the book of Psalms. One, so there's a few things that we should know that, about why this book is so unique. There's no book that's quite like it in the Bible. And let's just stick with some of the nerdy facts. Are you ready for some of this? So some of you are going to jot this stuff down. Some of you just eyes glaze over at this moment. But nonetheless, this book is um, actually a compilation of not one, but five books. You'll read as you go through the book of Psalms, you have book one, book two, book three, book four, book five. Kind of like I, somebody was making fun of me, all the references to Lord of the Rings, written as one book, but split into three. Okay, nonetheless. But the, uh, okay, so totaling, Five books totaling 150 chapters. That's more chapters than any other book in the Bible. It's not the longest by verse count, but it is the longest by chapter count. And that book was written actually over not a period of 100 years, not a period even of 200 years. The book of Psalms was collected and written, stitched together over a period of 1,200 years, so far as we know. Which means that the book of Psalms was being written throughout Israel's history. I can see you doing the math, 150 chapters, though. Doesn't that mean um, if we do, say, 10 psalms a year, that means we're going to be in well, psalms for a long time. Well, that's, that's true, actually. So my, my, uh, my oldest uh, will probably be 19 um, when we finish this. But hey, uh, 12 years is, is less than 1,200. So um, here we go. Psalms, the Psalter, nonetheless, is, as it's sometimes called, is a book that was being written and stitched together, again, at various points in Israel's history. Um, in fact, stretches perhaps the most, the majority of the events we have in the Old Testament prior to Jesus, but it doesn't just cover a wide breadth of time and circumstances. It covers a wide breadth of emotions and experiences, which is why, and I think this is more because of this, this um, fact about the, about the book of Psalms, that it's been so cherished by so many. In fact, I in interacting with some who would consider themselves rather skeptical to Christianity, it's interesting how often they, if, if they love anything about the Bible or they're quick to quote anything about the Bible, it's the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms was cherished by the average Jew, the early church, the reformers. Even Jesus quotes from and identifies with the book of the Psalms more than any other book in the Bible, it would seem. There is no book that seems to get us quite like the Psalms do. In fact, I don't know how many people have asked me to read the Psalms to them in times of pain and uncertainty, even or sometimes especially in the face of death. You see, the Psalms, they ground us when everything in our lives is reeling. And they, they help us to talk to God when we have no idea what to say. While other books might teach us what a relationship with God looks like, the book of Psalms teaches us what a relationship with God sounds like. In other words, we get permission to be like a fly on the wall, listening in, not just on someone else's conversations with God, but someone who knows God deeply, who has walked with God through the highs and lows of life, who knows what it is to be known by God himself. It's why we hear the Psalms, well, you would have heard the Psalms, sung in ancient Israel in the temple, or why Jesus, with his disciples, would have sung them at his last supper, or why the early church, when they would get together for worship, would have sung the Psalms together. And it's why you'll hear often in our songs, 
lyrics from the Psalms stolen and plastered on because these words have been the words that God's people have used for worship for literally millennia. The Psalms, they they give us language for our lives of worship. They model faith for us. But most importantly, the Psalms point to our need for Jesus and the rescue he offers. In fact, even as Jesus quotes from the Psalms regularly, Jesus seems to assume what the Bible points forward to, that the book of Psalms is actually about Jesus himself. We're going to get to more of this in a second. This is especially important today, but I hope you're ready to get to it. I hope you keep your Bibles open again to Psalm chapter 20, where we find David in this Psalm on the verge of battle. And the way he prepares himself for this particular battle I think demonstrates the very real practical difference that faith makes in navigating our battles. And today we're going to split this psalm into three parts. Battle plans, battle prayers, and battle proof. Let's start with that first one, battle plans. Now when it comes to the context of this particular psalm, often a very common question to ask, what in the world is going on here? We want to know what the circumstances are, the history behind why David writes this, and we don't get any of that, which is actually pretty common in the book of Psalms. We don't know at what point David's life this is. We don't know who or why he is fighting, but I think that the circumstances don't actually prove to be that necessary in understanding the context. In fact, I think David is intentionally ambiguous so that this psalm could be more widely applicable. In other words, it's a good thing that we don't know what was going on here. Otherwise, we might think uh, this psalm only matters if you find yourself overrun on the plains of Megiddo by the Amalekites. But this passage actually refers to much more than if you find yourself in the face of a military conflict. The posture David takes particularly and the assurances he makes pertain not just to David, but to everyone who would hope in the same God when they face their day of trouble, as David puts it. Still, there are, there's at least one thing we need to point out that's unique about this battle, and that this battle is not one that David just found himself swept into. This seems to be a battle that David long planned for as king. While many battles come upon us suddenly and unexpectedly, this battle was one that he strategized, planned, and plotted. All that's now left is to embark. And interpreting this psalm, this actually ends up being really, really important. After all, the people who are the main speaker often in this psalm, what are they asking for? What are they asking God for specifically? That God would favor David's plans. Which gets to a really important principle right from the get-go. Again, there are some battles that don't just happen to us, and there are plenty of those, I think we could say, but there are also some battles that we must initiate. Fights, if you can believe it, we must pick. Let me give you an illustration of this. Now, over the years, Grace and I have counseled many couples looking to get married, done engagement counseling and even pre-engagement counseling. We cover a lot of different time, things in our uh, topics in our time together, including, and it's probably not a surprise to you, communication. Some of those who have been married, you'd say that you can probably point to the tensions you face in your marriage often boil down to communication, don't they? The second that we always make sure to talk about is conflict, okay? So 
We, but, the, but the problem is, and I, I think those who have been married for some time would say, well, that's definitely important. Casey, okay, so the longer you go, the more honest you're probably uh, about conflict in your marriage. But it's really hard to talk about conflict with engaged couples. Anybody have a guess why? Because they are just so in love with one another. We often would hear that, you know, they would say almost as a point of boasting, oh, Evan, you don't understand. We have never fought about anything. As if that was something to boast about, assuming that a lack of conflict indicates health. But we're going to find that that's actually not the case in the scripture. So one of the, one of the things in our premarital counseling, in fact, this sounds a little backwards. One of our goals, it just sounds a little sadistic, is to get them to fight if they've never fought for the first time. We want to get them to fight in that space, not only so we can teach them how to fight fair, how to fight well, not just because conflict ends up being an inevitable part of relationships, especially relationships that matter and endure, but because there are some things in a relationship that are worth fighting for. In fact, in a relationship, if you never find yourself fighting for something, you are losing more than you realize. When we don't fight for things, especially things that matter in a relationship, it's as if we are saying that they don't matter at all. When it comes to relationships, the Bible calls all of us to be peacemakers. It's a very, very important term, but one we don't really, many of us, understand, let alone live. That in the Bible, we're called to do whatever is in our power to foster, preserve, and to reconcile healthy relationships in our lives. The problem is, is that people, generally speaking, exchange peace making with two counterfeits. Counterfeits you could call peace-taking and peace-faking. Okay, so let me tell you what I, what I mean by this. And we pick up these patterns sometimes from our parents or sometimes because of her personality types or a, a, a collision between the two, but still peace-taking, what are we talking about? Well, a peace-taker is someone who approaches a conflict looking to do whatever it takes to get their way. They equate peace, again, with getting what I want. And it may be through subtle pressures, manipulation, a cold shoulder, denying a spouse sex, or pouting, or it may be through outright intimidation. It can't even get as extreme as verbal and physical abuse. Peace takers may succeed actually in getting what they want, even without lifting a finger. But when it comes down to it, for a peace taker, the relationship itself matters less than being able to get what they want or control others. Now, before you're too quick to identify, yeah, I know exactly who those people are, let's talk about the second, which is peace fakers. Peace faking is a lot more subtle, but just as dangerous. In fact, it can feel a lot like peace because in peace faking, I do whatever I can to avoid conflict and tension. It may be by ignoring it or running from it or making myself a doormat so the person will just finally lay off. The reason, though, that this is peace faking is it doesn't actually end up producing 
genuine peace. It just produces an absence of conflict, which are not the same thing. As Ken Sandy points out in a really excellent book, The Peacemaker, peace-faking people are usually more interested in avoiding unpleasant people or situations than actually resolving differences. Again, the relationship for a, for a peace faker matters less than simply having an absence of conflict. Now, there are many issues with both response, but for the purposes of this psalm, peace takers, if you will, they pick the wrong fights, while peace fakers pick no fights at all. Did your parents ever tell you, now, son, daughter, make sure you pick your battles? What are they saying? Usually after you pick the wrong one, okay, that you don't rush into every conflict, what are they trying to tell you? That there are some battles that are worth fighting, and there are some battles that are absolutely not worth fighting. And if we're going to fight, and fight we must, not just because conflict is inevitable, but because there are some things that are worth fighting over, we must make sure we are fighting for the right thing. The question is, is how in the world do we know? Well, some might say, and it's interesting how often I hear this among religious people, but I hear it plenty of times outside of that, but I hear it from religious people as well, might say it's all about compromise. I'll fight for my preference, and then you can fight for yours. So long as it's fair, it's all about the trade-off. However, the Bible, including the psalm, frames it much, much differently. We need to understand First, who is this psalm about? I hope you were noticing along the way, but look back at the language. It is about the king, Israel's king, and about his plans that the people want to see succeed. Why? Why is it that they're pleading for the plans of this king to succeed? It's not because this is just some piece of propaganda, some, some, a political advertisement, because they know that the king's plans are actually in their best interest. His plans aren't simply the product of selfish whims or to avenge his wounded pride. They know that the battle that the king is fighting for, he is fighting on their behalf. He is fighting for them. But even more importantly, they trust that the, the battle the king is fighting, he is fighting on God's behalf. We're going to get to this more in a second. But notice how in verse 4, when it speaks of his heart's desire, they're asking the Lord to fulfill. Notice how it's bound up with the next verse, the name of God himself. This is what Paul is getting at in the New Testament when he refers in 1 Corinthians 10, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This verse significantly comes in a context in which Paul is advocating for his audience to lay aside their preferences and privileges, not to fight for them. It's as if he assumes that in fighting for God's glory, we are no longer fighting for our preferences, our privileges, our rights. When it comes to fighting for God's glory, it's because there is someone that matters more than what I want or what you want, and that is what God himself wants. In other words, in our relationships, more is at stake than my career goals 
or the ideal picture you had for your family, or what you feel like you are owed from life, what is at stake in every decision, every relationship, every conflict is the glory of God himself. Everything. It says, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. It is about aligning our plans with the king's plans, our desires with the king's desires. After all, these plans and desires that our king has, like David's, are ultimately for our good, even if we might not immediately agree. Which means that when it comes to picking our fights, we need to have more, we need to have clarity about what God himself fights for. The unity of our marriages, the holiness of his people, the unity of the church, the defense of the poor and the vulnerable. God calls himself a warrior throughout the Bible because it, he, the Bible assumes that there are things that God himself sees as worth fighting for. Of course, there are some fights we need to give up, especially fights for our own preferences, comforts, and reputations. Many of us are locked in battles that have far more, if we're honest, to do with the kingdom of self than they do with the kingdom of God. But there are some conflicts that not only cannot be avoided, they must be engaged. There are some fights we must pick. Let me ask you, I mean, even now, do you have somebody on your mind? A conversation that needs to take place. Perhaps you need to fight once again, once again for your marriage. Not by fighting with your spouse, but by perhaps taking the first step of apologizing. Maybe you need to fight for a friendship. Maybe what your friend needs most is someone who is willing to risk an uncomfortable conversation with them, even if they may not initially respond well. You know, we're in times in which Christians are being asked more and more to either sideline their convictions or to become open allies of what is currently celebrated. You know, as believers, there is great wisdom, but also great courage that needs to be had to know what things we cannot compro compromise on, what allegiance to our king actually looks like, that even as there's many hills not worth dying on, there are some hills on which we must stand. There are some fights that we must engage. Now, I need to say, please hear me, this doesn't give us permission to become violent in our speech or actions. This doesn't give us permission to be jerks, and there are some religious people who would have no problem about speaking the truth, just plenty of problems about speaking it in love. Even our Savior, we need to say, refused to take revenge on his enemies, and every fight we engage must be done with humility, recognizing I, it's not because I am better than the other person across from me. Recognizing our battle as Paul puts it, is not with flesh and blood at all. And what that means, though, is with David, like David, we must give careful consideration to these fights, even strategic planning. We need to search the scriptures and search our own hearts, discerning from God's word what God has revealed his will to be. That I 
am doing what he wants, am actually seeing with honesty his will, even if it might cost me, even if it might mean that I have to risk again an uncomfortable conversation, that I need to see what God's will is rather than what I want it to be. We also must get wise counsel particularly from those who aren't automatically going to take our side. After all, you know that person you can call and they're going to have your back and say, yeah, you got it, sister. Go get them, okay? Not necessarily those kind of conversation, but someone who's going to ask you questions, drive you back to the word, and we must pray. Pray and fast. Before we engage in battle, we need to plan for battle, but then we must engage, and it always takes courage. For those who are prone to peace-taking, This courage may be in the form of biting your tongue or by refusing to react and get defensive, by being kind even as you are clear. But for the peace fakers, this courage may be in the form of actually leaning into the discomfort, by speaking the truth, by persisting in the discomfort without running away, by being clear even as you are kind. There are some battles that we must fight, but then when it comes to it, what kind of confidence should we have going into the battle itself, which leads to our second point, battle prayers. Now, before we get into this one, can I just be honest with you for a second? One of the battles I wrestle with as a pastor, especially these days, is often over the future of the church that I so love, you. Just to be honest, when we first moved to St. Louis, it was pretty apparent that the odds were stacked against the ministry of our church. And many of you who have been here during that time, or perhaps years prior to that, would have said the same. For more than five years, our our congregation was unable to pay a full-time pastor, and let alone keep up with the costs of an overbuilt facility, let alone eradicate a mortgage we had been paying for over 25 years, added to that to reconcile, to, to begin to consider our neighbors and relationships and friends. And honestly, when so we had become so ingrown over time, as is often the case. You know, often I, I feel what I was reminded of recently by one of my friends, um, I think well-meaning, that said, you know, the odds were stacked against you as soon as you arrived in St. Louis, as if I needed reminding. Thanks for the encouragement. Add to that the cultural changes taking place, okay? So it's not just, again, some of the risks that come as all of us embark on rebuilding this, the, the church that Christ himself is building upon the gospel, But then we have these cultural changes in which it's just getting more and more costly to be a public Christian, the increasing skepticism towards Christianity, the looming pressures to fold to predominant opinion, pressures that may soon turn legal. The odds are stacked against us. You know, on my good days, I can see God clearly at work among you. I mean, can't you? I mean, don't get me wrong. I see God at work very clearly in our church. I see the unity that he has produced, the change the gospel has brought to so many of your lives and families, those who have come to call this church home just even in the past year and what a year it has been and those who, and still those of you who are here who don't yet share my convictions about Jesus or of other Christians here, but still you're here week after week considering the claims and offer that Jesus makes to you. On my best days, 
I cannot help but be overwhelmed in gratitude over what God is doing in our church. And yet on the bad days, I, I confess I wonder to myself, can a church like ours really hope to rebuild after such a long period of decline and division? What about the social, when the social costs begin to add up? What will our gospel ministry look like then? I'd be lying if I said I hadn't lost sleep over it sometimes. Now, I can't predict the future. As D.A. Carson puts it, I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet, and I work for a nonprofit ministry. I don't know what the future holds, and yet I think this psalm gives us every reason for hope in a God who is faithful. I want you to look back at this text and notice the remarkable confidence the speakers seem to have about the future. The, the psalmist speaks about God's rescue as if it's already a foregone conclusion. The question is, is why? Is it really because he is so confident in his plans that his, that he's confident his strategy is just so well thought out, it's bound to succeed? Or maybe he is just convinced because he has more resources than his enemy. Maybe because the military is larger or more well-trained than the troops that they are facing. Well, let's look at verse 7, a verse I find fairly convicting. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. You know, when it came to doing battle, there was hardly a greater sign in the ancient world than a chariot chained to a powerful war horse. Now, these may not seem, these may seem lost on us. These don't seem very mighty today, but you could almost guarantee the success of a battle based on how many chariots and horses you had. One was a force to be reckoned with, let alone thousands. They, the, thousands. they were the tanks or the F-16s of the ancient world. But to make this a bit more concrete, Perhaps we could take chariots and horses and insert something else, like talent or experience. Some trust doctors or experts, a certain kind of schooling, a certain program, a certain personality, a certain political goal, maybe family, technology, money, reputation. We could fill in the blanks with so many other things, couldn't we? Some trust in these things. And here's the question. When it comes to taking your own risks, what are the things that you rely on? When anxiety wells up within you, how do you comfort yourself? What do you spend your time, your thoughts on most easily, your money on, just so that you might have certainty that it's all going to turn out okay? One of the ways to know is to look at what you talk about. After all, the word trust here, in its original language in the Hebrew, means something like confess. What do you confess? In other words, what do you want people to know about you? What do your conversations always seem to turn toward? When others express concern, what do you point to to reassure them? Is it how well you have planned things out? What resources you have going for you? The thing is, whatever the answer is to those questions likely represents where you and I have rooted our trust in actuality. 
When we have that thing, we are sure of ourselves, aren't we? Maybe even a little arrogant, if we're honest. When we don't, we are full of anxiety. And so often, we bounce back and forth between overconfidence and underconfidence based on whether or not we have that thing we are trusting in, the thing we actually desire, the thing, according to the Bible, we actually are worshiping. But then look at verse 7 again. How does it end? Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. What in the world does it mean to trust in the name of the Lord? It might make sense of to us to trust in the Lord, and that's probably how many of us take this, but there's actually something really significant going on here that we may not realize. In the ancient world, you see, a person's name represented a person's essence, their character, who they really were. And when it comes to the Lord's name and how it's used throughout the Bible, there are several things we could say, but perhaps three things that matter most for our passage concerning the Lord's name. First, God has revealed his name to his people, which means, again, that he has revealed his basic essence and his character to his people, which was very unlike the gods that you would have in the ancient Near East. He wasn't a silent god, a god that you had to search out, guess at how to please. You had to invent because you assumed that he was basically a bigger, better version of yourself. He was not a god, again, like so many, who may have proven to be as finicky and forgetful and reactive as we are. No, this was a God who revealed himself to his people. He defines his own nature and character. A God who is supremely clear on his faithfulness, that he is the great I am that I am. He will define himself, and he will be the kind of God that he is forever. That he is a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is a God who reveals himself and will not allow himself to be defined any other way. But number two, this God has set his name upon his people. What does this mean? That he has identified himself with his people in a very personal way. It's as if God himself has bound his reputation to his people, as finicky and, again, as fickle as they are. That uh, number six uh, makes this clear to us in a very famous passage, the ironic blessing, it's called. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. All of these are really wonderful assurances. There's a very popular song about this even now. But all of this is grounded actually in the following verse. In verse 27, so shall, they put my, so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. The God puts his name on his people. He bounds his glory, his reputation up with their future. What assurance do his people then have that he will bless and keep them? That he will cause his face to shine upon them and be gracious to them? Is it because they are so intelligent and deserving? Because they end up being so faithful? No, because God has put his own reputation on the line. That so long as he is deserving, he he ever will be faithful. Isn't that good assurance for us? Because God has set his name on his people. He has bound himself and his glory to them, which is what David means in verse 1 when he says, May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. He doesn't say, May your reputation protect you. 
your family protect you, your stuff protect you, your Amazon cart. No, he says, your protection is found from the one who has set his name upon you. That's still not all the Bible has to say about God's name. A strange thing is that this God who has set his name upon you now trusts those he loves, those he set his name upon, to act on behalf of that same name. God's people will act and pray in his name. In verse 5, when David says, In the name of our God, set up our banners. This is what he's getting at. What this doesn't mean is that every battle we engage is one God himself is fighting on our behalf. And I think that should be pretty apparent, but it's interesting how often we assume that he is. God doesn't join us in the fight for our own self-interest. God is not in a fight for our kingdom of self. He doesn't even join us in the fight for all of our heart's desires. No wonder we lack assurance that God is as committed to all that we want as we are. He may not be. Rather, what makes David and his people so confident in the face of this battle is that this battle is not ultimately for his own namesake or the name of his people, but the name of our God. Because the king's desires correspond to the Lord's desires. In other words, when God is truly what we desire, we can trust him to accomplish his will. And we can trust him in radical ways. And friends, do you know this is actually what it means to pray in Jesus's name? I realize that depending on how you've grown up, you t- we can tack in Jesus' name on, the, on our prayers as if it's like hanging up the phone. That's bad theologically regardless. But it's, it's definitely also not a magical formula to say, okay, God, everything I've asked for, now we've said it in Jesus' name, now it's going to happen. This isn't some name it and claim it theology as if we can just simply see the thing we want, claim it, and then name it in Jesus' name, and he's bound to give it like some sort of vending machine if we press the right buttons. In a, God's will, instead, to pray in Jesus' name means to pray for the very things we are convinced God would have us pray for. I tell you what, if this is true, we might be a little more careful before praying things in Jesus' name, I think. We should probably ask ourselves, is this really something I'm confident God would have me ask for in his name? After all, James warns us that one of the reasons that God doesn't answer our prayers is because we ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. The Lord is not bound to answer our prayers, friends, especially our selfish ones. When we pray in Jesus' name, we are saying, in a sense, I am praying this because Jesus is my Lord, because I recognize that his name is upon me. I am praying this because I am not my own anymore. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God, and I'm praying this for his namesake and not my own, which is why then Jesus can make some very extreme promises about this kind of prayer. John chapter 14, and this is, uh, I, I could have picked many passages that say basically the same thing. Whatever you ask in my name, again, whatever you ask, we cannot leave off in my name, okay? This I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son, 
If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Again, this doesn't mean you can claim that girlfriend for the Lord, okay? It doesn't mean that you can claim that degree or that you're going to get out of trouble, that they'll never find out. Okay, so we can't necessarily bank on these things, praying, expecting that God will favor prayers offered for the kingdom of self and not the kingdom of God. But when we do pray like this, there is a radical assurance that God provides us, that he may not provide in the way that we expect, but we can always trust that he has provided, even in when it isn't what I wanted it is better than we could have expected. If it corresponds to his will, and we are praying for his will to be done in specific, concrete ways in his name, we can trust that the Lord is the one who is eager to fulfill that. When it comes to facing our battles, our confidence can't be in our resources or plans unless the Lord favors them after all. Horses and chariots, even sacrifices are pointless. And yet when we walk forward, placing ourselves in prayerful dependence upon the Lord's name, looking for him to provide, we can do so in confidence that he has set his name upon us and we act in his behalf. But there's still a greater assurance yet, which brings to the final point, battle proof. Look at verse 6 once more. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Well, this is a pretty big, big gear shift in the Psalms. It, this is radical confidence again. It's almost as if he is, I mean, it just seems arrogant to say, now I know that he will save. Isn't it better to say, if the Lord wills, he will save? How can he say something so audacious? We might say, because perhaps this is uh, picking up after the battle had been fought, and the people are looking back now and saying, now I know because he did prove himself faithful that he would win because he did win. But this seems to still be before the battle has been even started. How can he then be so confident that the Lord would save? Well, again, it's because of who the psalm is about. Notice that phrase again. Now I know that the Lord saves, not stop, saves his anointed. This word, anointed one, is the same word for Messiah, a word which looks beyond David to another king, a Messiah who would go on behalf of his people into battle. This is what we see taking place in Jesus himself, who's called Jesus the Christ which means Messiah, whose name significantly, Jesus, means the Lord saves. Isn't that remarkable? Notice how often in this passage it speaks of the Lord's salvation. In Jesus, meaning the Lord saves, we see God's eternal plans to, at work to send a Messiah, God's help from his sanctuary, even from his holy heaven, a Messiah upon whom the Lord would set his name, God in human flesh, who trusted not in chariots or in horses, but only in his Father's name. And in that name, Jesus, our Messiah, faced our greatest battle, a battle we could not hope to win, a battle with sin itself. And he did so, not by a show of military might, but by offering himself as an offering, as a sacrifice, as the greatest petition imaginable for God to save. And because Jesus was not saved, because the Lord 
did not answer him when he called out upon the cross. Because Jesus collapsed and fell to his own death, we might, in the power of his resurrection, rise and stand upright forever. To put this more succinctly, the Lord answers all who call upon him for salvation, for the forgiveness of their sins, who will rest upon his king to do so because of this true and better king, a king who reigns from his cross. Which means, in the face of the battles that I face now, and you face too, we have more assurance than David himself did. What confidence do we have that the Lord will not leave us or forsake us, that the Lord will save because of the one who has saved us already, because the one who has been given an eternal kingdom and now stands before God offering my appeal, because of the Lord's anointed, my Messiah, because God answers him now, he will answer me. When you get this, When you truly believe this, I have to tell you, courage takes over you when you know that even if things don't go as you like, that you are safe, when you know that the Lord will never finally let you down, although he might seem to do so in light of what you can presently see, when you know your greatest battle has already been fought and won through no effort of your own, it makes you bold. It gives you the courage not just to pick and plan your battles, but to engage them, trusting that as you fight with conviction and humility, as you trust in the name of the Lord your God, the Lord will save. The Lord will answer. Because the Lord answers him, the Lord will answer you. Lord, we come to you as those who need your help and those who come to you for Rescue we cannot manufacture, no matter how good our plans are or resources. We know that this is supremely true in what Christ has accomplished for us in dying on our behalf to bring about the forgiveness of sins. And it is still true in the needs and fights that we face on a day-to-day basis. We are in need of such wisdom, such humility, such confidence to walk forward as, as public followers of Jesus Christ. We can only do so if the assurances of the gospel are true and we know through Christ that they are. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us today to know what fights we must pick, to know the fights that we must give up, to have our heart's desire correspond to your own. And we pray all these things. In the precious name of Jesus, amen.